This is episode 5 of IQS Tech Factory talk series. In this episode, we talk to Heriberto Saldivar, Managing Director at Brink Accelerator. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us today another episode of IQS Tech Factory talk series. My name is Oriol Pascual, and I'm the Managing Director at IQS Tech Factory, a European hub for industrial innovation and entrepreneurship based in Barcelona. At IQS Tech Factory, we help build the next generation of industrial companies. And how do we do it? Well, basically, we have an acceleration program where we help uh, hardware-based startups to go from a functional prototype to our first industrial series. We also manage a community of heads of innovation at large uh, industrial companies that they are looking to connect with the startups and innovation in order to become more competitive. And finally, we let know to the world that industrial entrepreneurship is something relevant to bet on. And one way we do that is through an annual event we host in January called IQS Tech Fest, uh, where we're hosting a trade show area, conference program, and, uh, and, uh, and an investment forum. And in fact, I'm happy to say that uh, we have the final dates for IQS Tech Fest 2021. For first time, it's going to be a two-day uh, event that's going to be the 20th and 21st of January 2021. So please put that in your agendas. Tickets are coming out uh, very soon. And... Uh, well, we are evolving, and, and the way we are doing that is that we're going to have a hybrid event. We are going to mix uh, digital content, and we're going to mix also uh, uh, on-site uh, content. Very exciting, lots of interesting things, so please uh, write in your agendas, 20, 21st of January of 2021, IQS Tech Fest, and you can always go to iqstechfest.com uh, for some information. So why are we doing this? What are we hosting this uh, talk series? Well, as I was saying, um, we think that it's very important to uh, let know to the world that, uh, that uh, industry-based startups are the ones that generate uh, value added. Um, and it's important to grow this sector. So we decided to invite a series of uh, people that is making it happen. So we're inviting corporates, uh, entrepreneurs, accelerators, scientists uh, to let us know how they see uh, industrial innovation and entrepreneurship. As it is the case today that we have Heriberto Saldivar from Brink, uh, one of the top uh, hardware accelerators. Um, before we start, I would like to uh, thank to the uh, Barter team and IQS Tech Factory teams for making this happen. And, and if you've been following, uh, you heard me say this several times, but although this seems uh, simple, there is quite a team of people behind the camera making sure everything runs smooth, the countdown, the intros, the questions, everything. So thank you very much for your support and to make it look uh, so, so nice and simple. Also, I would like to remind you that you can send your questions to our guest today, um, and you can do that in several ways. If you are watching this through our own website at iqstechfactory.com, uh, through the embed video, you have a chat in there. Uh, don't hesitate to go to the chat and throw your questions, and, and we are going to res respond or reply to those. 
If you are watching at this through a social media, either on Twitter or through YouTube, um, you can send us a message in, in social media using the hashtag TalkSeriousIQSTF. So with that, I would like to, uh, to, to introduce you our guest today. So today is joining us Heriberto Saldivar. Uh, Heriberto actually is the managing director of the Brink Accelerators. Uh, we're going to hear about Brink, but uh, Brink has uh, up to 12 accelerator programs around the world, and he's in charge of those acceleration programs, plus the international expansion of Brink. Um, Heriberto holds a degree in mechatronics and also holds a master's degree in aerospace engineering. Uh, and after a short period at Procter & Gamble, he decided to study Chinese and uh, initiated a collaboration with the Taiwanese Aerospace Agency. And I want to ask a little bit about the experience in there. Uh, it's out of his work at the Taiwanese Aerospace uh, Agency that he got a PhD um, also about aerospace engineering, more specifically about the, re the re-entry phase of, of rockets. And I think that since he uh, did that PhD and now many things happen because now re-entries are actually managed. Yeah? We have the, the case of a SpaceX and, and, and we are uh, making sure that we are reusing those uh, fuel tanks for next uh, missions. So from aerospace to hardware startups, uh, Heriberto joined Brink uh, at the early days of the program uh, as an engineer, uh, but today he's in charge of the acceleration programs and also he's in charge of the overall Brink international expansion. So Heriberto, uh, thanks for joining us today at the IQS Tech Factory Talk Series. Thanks so much, Oriol, and congratulations for the uh, for the event. I actually, when you were talking, I was putting it in my calendar, so I'll be happy to to join as previous times. It's a really yeah, nice event. It will be nice to see you again there. Yeah, the nice thing is that, well, as you know, it's a it's a it's an easy event. Eh? We do it well. It's an easy. Some thousand people coming. Uh, this is let's see the year because, of course, the the, the COVID pandemic may change uh, the, the situation, but. Uh, but but it's very focused uh, and it's very much about hardware uh, startups and and there is a lot of inspiration also of the future that is coming and it will be awesome to have you again with uh, with us this year. Good to be there. So so um, Roberto, uh, for the upcoming hour we're going to have a bit of a conversation. We want to learn a bit about you. We want to know a lot about Brink, how you work internationally with hardware startups, and also maybe we can have a bit of a conversation about how is the the, the current pandemic or the COVID affecting the development of this kind of uh, of startups. But I definitely would like to start talking about about you and and specifically understanding. How did you get into aerospace engineering and, and what made you decide to take this path? And, and most importantly, and, and sorry for cutting, um, how did you end up collaborating with different space agencies? Well, um, that's a long road. Um, I have always been very passionate about science, uh, very geeky, <laughs> uh, love uh, Star Wars, Star Trek, uh, contact i was reading uh, carl sagan like everything that has to do with science has always fascinated me and uh you know this joke that they say that uh, too early to explore uh the universe too late to explore the oceans that's a mentality i always had um i remember since i was maybe 10 years old i said i was going to be an astronaut 
uh, it has always been kind of my dream. And uh, from that on, I started working uh, how we can achieve that, right? So I started working mechatronics. I love um, the idea that I could go mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, material science, computers. So it gave me a very good solid base. And um, when I graduated from university, I got a scholarship to study in Taiwan. Uh, the idea was one year of Chinese and then my master's degree. I went to uh, National Chengkong University. It is one of the few universities in the world who has launched uh, uh, satellites into space. Uh, thankfully, I was accepted. Uh, my advisor, uh, Professor Wen, was a really incredible, is a really incredible person. Uh, he was working with collaboration with Caltech. Um, his advisor, let's call it my grandpa advisor in a sense, uh, he has developed a very big uh, theory regarding to re-entry conditions, shockwave, and uh, this is something basic that you need to understand in order to kind of do the re-entry. People always think that the difficult part is going up there. It's difficult, but the return it is uh, sometimes even more complex and challenging because of the uh, the particularities of each um place that we get. Uh, if you want to land in Mars, you get certain conditions. You want to learn in uh, Earth. Uh, atmosphere creates a lot of problems, right? So I um, uh, was working with them. At the same time, we got uh, national space organizations in Taiwan. Uh, then they were, uh, one of my co-advisors was a director there. Uh, then we were working with uh, ITAM. It's a Russian uh, university, but uh, they had the professor there and one of my co-advisors was the guy who was designing the code for when we needed uh, the Mir space agency needed to be retired in order to re-entry to the atmosphere, you need to be able to calculate that return path and everything. So uh, that's something really good about uh, international um, academia, but it is even more intense when it comes to uh, space uh, exploration. Uh, you can see many times that even during the Cold War, um, Russian and American scientists, they always were thinking more about collaboration uh, being in space gives you a bigger perspective. Uh, we're, like Carl Sagan said, uh, just a small, uh, small uh, pale blue dot, and uh, we are insignificant, right? And uh, this is kind of something that it has always been in my mind. I graduated from my master, and my advisor was offered a position in Hong Kong to expand the research in aerospace engineering, and um, he invited me to go there. I got a scholarship uh from the Hong Kong uh, government, the Hong Kong uh, scheme. It is uh, one of the most prestigious one in, in Hong Kong. So it was really good to be able to understand more. We start working with the European Space Agency, uh, the German Space Agency called DLR, uh, mostly focused in what it was re-entry conditions. And we also were working with the Chinese Academy of Science, right? So overall, um, we leave politics aside and what we want was the value of science and what it is developing these uh, edge technologies. And uh, well, that is what it dropped me there. And it has always been my goal to get the, the future, right? And um, that after that, uh, to be honest, uh, it became a little bit of bittersweet because of academia is very focused in publishing journals and all of these uh, rat race that uh, at the end of the day, that's not why I'm here. I want to bring these solutions and technologies into the world. And uh, that's how I discover entrepreneurship, right? Uh, we get uh, amazing technologies, amazing teams that are developing crazy things, and they want to be able to be bringing it to you. And um, one thing led to another, and here I am. <laughs> what I like about this story is the, the, the importance of the role of science fiction as a source of inspiration 
in order to pursue a professional career. And I think we are from a generation, I'm not going to ask you how old are you, but I think <laughs> more or less, uh, maybe I'm a bit older than you, but uh, back on the day, let's say if you are born in mid seventies or so in the decade of the seventies, um, science fiction play a key role in, in having an interest on, on science, you know? I mean, those of us that were born when the Star Wars saga came out and, and it was, uh, it really, um, open up our imagination of, about uh, uh, what it's possible. But I also think that today this has changed. And, and of course, in a way, it seems that many fields have been democratized. And one is space exploration. The fact of uh, commercial uh, space flights are out there. Um, it, it, it means there is a new era. And, and I have the feeling, so I have two little daughters. And, uh, and the nice thing is that, for instance, SpaceX, everyone, every time they're doing a launch, they're doing such a great uh, production, putting out there the launch, explaining the phases and so on. And we're watching it live. And my, my girls are really small, but I can tell you, the one that is not even two years old, every single day she's asking me to watch rockets. Like rockets, rockets, rockets. You know, she's seeing me with the computer. She relates that to, to rockets and what's rockets. And I have the feeling... That is going to be the, the Star Wars for the new generations, if you want. The fact of seeing it real, and, and, and they can explain you, they wonder it's four, almost four years old. She knows perfectly the faces of, 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 uh, of, the, of, the, of the launching of a rocket. So, so that's fantastic. I, I love to see that. So you had that experience. Um, uh, so if you think about uh, space exploration in Asia, maybe that's not so much in the, in the, uh, in the mindset of people. So... Uh, tell, tell us a little bit about what would you say are the strengths of Asia regarding um, uh, space exploration? Um, I think that uh, they have a great uh, scientist, they get great engineers, um, but it's not only that, it is also uh, something that hasn't been as politicized and it has happened in a lot of uh, different locations, right? Uh, obviously, it is always a propaganda uh, tool, uh, space, uh, even since the beginning from Korolev and the Leica, uh, Leica sorry, launch, it was always like, oh, the superiority and everything. But it's also something that has gone into a really interesting uh, direction, right? For example, if you take a look at um, uh, India, they launched um, a rocket. Uh, it was, I think, uh, two or three years ago. And the cost of creating the space programs to launch that rocket was cheaper than the cost of creating the movie Gravity with Sandra Bullock. So wow. it, is, uh, it is kind of like you can do these things in, in, because it's a lot of imagination. The budgets are not so inflated. So they are achieving a lot of things, right? Then, uh, for example, China has a lot of interest. Like, for example, we got a tool that is called a shockwave tunnel. Uh, it is a technically a machine that uh, it's a long tube. That you generate a lot of pressure, and when this uh, you open a valve, it explodes and generates a simulation of a shock wave uh, that that you can reach uh, max speeds of uh, ten, five, uh, and generally speaking, these machines are like uh, maybe the size of uh, a big room, a little bit longer because they're expensive, right? And the diameter that you generally get it is. 30 centimeters or something like this. China has created the biggest one in the world. And uh, just to go from one side to another, you have to have a ride a bicycle. Uh, the test subjects that you're putting inside, you, you generally measure that with uh, microseconds. And uh, because it is so fast and also at the same time, uh, the, the temperatures reach so high. So they need to control and reduce the speed because it is too fast and too much that it melts the test uh, subjects, right? So it's a different wow. challenge. 
but it is because of this mentality. Like I think that uh, they are still thinking big. All of this hunger, it is something important. Also, um, our societies tend to grow, and that's something I think that you are very, uh, you and I have discussed in the past. We start to go more towards services and. Uh, how many uh, majors uh, of your friends are like uh, major in uh, economics, uh, business, marketing. And when you go to these developing countries, uh, China, Taiwan, India, the majority are engineers. So there's a lot of talent, a lot of ideas. It's a, a, a melting pot of, of, of ideas that helps us kind of like develop a lot of great things. So this is something that uh, fascinated me. What would you say then? Um, I was here talking and, and I realized the following. Um, well, now we have, I mean, uh, uh, both you at Bring and we at IQS Tech Factory. So basically, we are supporting science-based, engineering-based hardware startups. Um, and what we see in the last years is that there is a number, a sizable number of uh, startups that they are in aerospace. Uh, either they are developing, we have here in Barcelona from companies like Pangea or Pangea that they're developing uh, 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 reusable rockets to send microsatellites to space, um, to, to Spanish companies like uh, PLD doing uh, uh, engines also for, for rockets. So there are quite, quite some uh, startups uh, in the field of uh, space exploration or aerospace engineering. Is that something that you also see? I mean, you have lots of experience with Asia and China. Is that something that you see also over there or, or the role, um, the development is still very much on the hands of, of the government? Um, we are dreamers everywhere. Uh, and I think that there's a lot of uh, engineers who want to do that. Um, I think they... Uh, the, the difference that we generally see it is that uh, space exploration and all of the, uh, how to say it, uh, the effort that you need to put, it is expensive, right? So um, yeah, you can make it what uh, Elon Musk is doing with SpaceX, but it has been a long run. It is uh, really capital intensive. So uh, I think that uh, we're gonna be seeing more. Uh, I think that Elon Musk, uh, regardless of all of the media that he generally gets has paved the road to showcase that it is economically viable. In the past, it has always been the biggest uh, conglomerates, uh, Airbus, uh, Boeing, uh, Lockheed Martin. All of these companies are the ones who have uh, control with the government, they're lobbying, and they have been kind of like a difficult to penetrate. Elon managed to kind of like open the road. And I think that we're only gonna be starting to see more and more. Um, I cannot uh, reveal much, but we're actually uh, taking a look at a couple of these companies right now in our due diligence process, right? So that's something that I personally take with a lot of uh, excitement, but at the same time, it makes me be more strict because I cannot let my emotions <laughs> run when we're selecting this thing. <laughs> no, that's fine. Actually, I was also realizing um, probably there are today more uh, space-related startups out there than startups in the field of uh, automotive and cars. Because if I'm thinking I'm capable actually of coming up with few names of uh, rocket base or, or, or satellite base uh, startups, and if I have to think of new startups or new companies um, developing cars, even if they're innovative cars, I can mention one actually. So, so that's, that's interesting to, to, to see. And I'm thinking actually of the guys of, I don't know if you know them, but in, in the Netherlands, there, there is this uh, team called, a company called Lightyear One, 
which I would yeah, recommend high, high anyone work. to take to take a look. And 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 uh, Lightyear one is fantastic. So this is a team of students or young people that is been participating in the Shell Solar Race in Australia, which is a race uh, in which uh, you build these solar cars, and it's about range and speed. Um, and the TU Eindhoven uh, guys, well, TU Eindhoven and TU Delft have been always the two for the last decade that yeah. is either one or the other worldwide winning always the, the race. The guys of TU Eindhoven end up building a company uh, called Lightyear One. I recommend anyone to take a look into that because it's truly fascinating and it's truly inspirational. Um, basically, they are developing a car, an utilitarian car, which is electric, but it is uh, self-charging because it has solar panels and it's a beautiful car. They have designers from Pininfarina. They have former Tesla engineers there, and it's an astonishing story. But but it's the only one I can recall uh, in, in in this area. So we are de developing more rockets, if you want, from a startup perspective than than, than cars. But um, but Heriberto, actually, I would like to know a little more about Brink. So Brink, I will say, if we're talking about hardware acceleration, um, there are not many programs globally that they, they do that. Uh, there is a handful, actually, of, of them. And you are rather young. Uh, so Brink is a, some six-year-old organization. And, and I believe that so far this has been an iterative process. Um, so can you tell us a little bit how did Brink started and how did you end up with the current model? Sure. Um, I think that uh, actually we're turning six this year, so I will say that we're You're still turning five. six. <laughs> yes, um, it is. Uh, it is. Uh, it's been a really nice challenge and road. Um, the pro the company started with our three um, founders, uh, Manap Gupta, uh, Bay McLaughlin, and Bashar uh, Abdoud. Uh, came with this crazy idea of uh, first of all creating some hardware. It was when the moment that the Pebble came out and like all of this heat of, of hardware came out, right? So uh, they were they met in, in, in Asia, they were in Hong Kong, and then they decided, yeah, you know what? We're gonna do an accelerator. And as you know, Oriol, uh, an accelerator, it is not easy, uh, but hardware accelerator is even more complicated, right? So the first iteration we realized, uh, okay, how we build something. So uh, it, it was very hands-on, helping the teams, going to the factories. And that led us to the creation of what we call a Bring Studio, or it is our manufacturing division. And uh, we opened it in Guangzhou, that it is the capital of the Canton region. Uh, a lot of people was moving to Shenzhen. We believe that Shenzhen is really valid, but because we're in Hong Kong, Shenzhen to Hong Kong, it is one hour right away. So we believe that Guangzhou with the location of like politics and also the net distribution network, we thought that it was also an interesting bet. So we opened there and we started generating a lot of uh, products with our teams, right? So that has teached us a lot and we can teach the team and explain the teams not only about, oh, you know what? This is how you build a product because we saw a pre PowerPoint presentation. It is like, we've done it. Uh, we can tell you uh, uh, defects and uh, we have been working right now. We had 143 startups in our portfolio. I personally have worked with more than 100 startups, and it has been helping them with uh, something as simple as like, oh, the LED colors are not uh, up to match. To oh, my my product uh, lead time is not correct. What can we do? Uh, we got teams whose warehouse burned down because of a fire. How you handle these things? Uh, so there's a lot of things, right? So we have been building at the same time. Uh, we have been understanding how the world uh, keeps expanding. Uh, uh, 
OPER with the uh, whole uh, One Bell, One Road initiative and all the towns we have seen also like uh, Guangzhou, Hong Kong, Great Bay Area is just the beginning. And we see how 70% of the electronic products in the world are made in uh, China. So you need to deal with it. And everybody who wants to go abroad uh, to sell, they need to understand how China works. So we started growing. Um, at the time, uh, then uh, I started running the program actually here in Barcelona. Reimagine Drone was our first program internationally outside of, uh, let's say, Asian influence. And we had a really good set of three companies, and it gave us a little bit more like the courage to lead. Um, six months later, we opened uh, Bahrain, uh, or offices in the Middle East. And then uh, I think uh, one or two months later, we opened in, in Poland. Then we opened in India. Uh, we are expanding our offices in Guangzhou. We just opened in Australia. And uh, it has been kind of like uh, the idea that we have it is that we can find amazing startups everywhere. Uh, there's a lot of like misconnection between like, oh, Americans are good at this. Indians are good at this. No, we can have a lot of great talent out there, right? A lot of people uh, assume that, um, for example, that in Spain, the people are just like focused in, a, and I have heard a lot of times like, oh, the technology is 10 years in the past. And then that, that we're just catching up. And I have met a lot of great companies here in Spain that are developing great things, right? So us having this international perspective has helped us. And um, two and a half years ago, we had a kind of like a rebranding. We started to understand who we were. And funny enough, we realized that uh, everything that we have been doing aligns a lot with the uh, United Nations developing goals. And we have been doing it kind of like unconsciously. So we decided to own it uh, with more passion. And we created the four categories that are helping us how to live in a better world. And so we focus in, in technology that help us uh, to how we feel, med tech, uh, healthcare, uh, where we live, smart cities, uh, how we move, uh, logistics, robotics, and uh, what we eat. And uh, we started with agrotech, and then eventually we move into food tech. Um, food tech became our second uh, core vertical of what we're doing. Um, our founder, Manav Gupta, it is... Uh, a vegetarian he has always uh, respected the life of animals and he has always been trying to push uh, how we can create a better world right uh, including animals right and uh, you will say like hardware food what's the difference right but at the end of the day they're physical products and there's a lot of similarities on developing a physical product as a hardware as a physical product as food right um, i can tell you or you'll bake me a cake and you take butter, you take eggs, you whip it, and then you get a cake, right? But if I'm telling you, like, Oriol, create me a Twinkies, it is completely different process because you need to understand uh, supply chain, packaging, and everything. And at the end of the day, there's a very big uh, similarity between uh, hardware products and, and IoT and robotics and food because all of them are physical products. It's, it's easy to do, well, not easy, but uh, relatively easy to release the software you put it on the cloud and oh my god we have a problem a patch and update over the air and that's it you cannot do that with physical products and that's something that we start to kind of absorb uh we grew a lot we partnered with a good food institute in um in uh, asia so we're their uh, preferred partners from asia and china and we start to kind of like learn more and now we get an amazing team who has been helping us we just closed a new program with a lever vc we're going to be investing in teams in in china uh, to develop new fruit products, right? Alternative proteins, uh, uh, improving the supply chain and everything that has to do with uh, how we develop food. And uh, after that, we jump into how we improve our cities, right? And then we launched a program last year with uh, Schneider Electric for um, smart cities and clean energy. And um, 
that opened another path for us, right? Clean energy, clean tech, um, how we improve uh, efficiency in the houses. Right now, everybody's locked down in their houses and it's great, but we're using a lot of electricity, right? How we reduce this consumption, how we take advantage of uh, solar panels. We have invested in companies who are, for example, not developing the solar panels, but developing solution to clean solar panels because, and that's something that they teach me, you can lose up to 40% of efficiency just by the dust that falls into your solar panels, mm -hmm. right? So all of these things is something that start to build up. And I think it has been a little bit of organic uh, driven by a mission, right? A mission of helping these, uh, we call them game changers. These startups who are um, trying to change the status quo, trying to make uh, the world a better place. And at the end of the day, yeah, we are a venture capitalist. We want to make money, right? But we want to bet in the technologies and solutions that help us, right? We get a medtech companies. Uh, we get one company who is developing a 3D printer for a biological parts. And um, this is something that uh, it's important. Now we're working with another company who is doing cotton, uh, like uh, growing in the lab. Instead of spending so much uh, water, uh, I was reading that the same water that you use for a whole year uh, in a family house is the same that you need for making one shirt. So in order to prevent that, we have these kind of companies. And that's how we started to grow and it's become very organic. Actually, well, Ediberto, um, we start getting questions from, from the audience and I will take the opportunity to, to remind everyone watching that please you can send us uh, questions either through the chat or through social media with the hashtag uh, uh, talk series, no. I, I always mess up the, the, the hashtag, sorry. <laughs> the hashtag is, yeah, talk series IQSTF, yes. <laughs> uh, so please do that. And, and I'm going to get into some of the questions right away, but I'm very interested about your expansion model because that's also one of your responsibilities. And, and um, uh, we from IQS Tech Factory, we are looking up to organizations like yours uh, for the way you work, but also uh, for for... Uh, your uh, international perspective and, and actually that's why we do absolutely everything in English and that's why we, we always uh, have this global perspective. Tell us a little bit about your, your expansion strategy. How did you manage to go so quick to so many locations? And then um, something that we heard is that um, you partnered with uh, some corporations like the case of General Electric. So it's neither, sorry. Yeah. Be careful there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but um, tell us a little bit. So when you expand and you go to a country, you do this together with a local government, with some local companies. Tell us a little bit, how do you uh, manage uh, this uh, international expansion? Sure. Uh, so uh, I think one of the strengths is that we're very uh, diverse. We get people from all around the world. We get... Um, Indians, Latin Americans, uh, Americans, uh, European, like uh, we get Middle Eastern. So we need to understand the culture, right? And when we're going to be selecting a new place, what we do is we do an analysis about the possibility of this, uh, sorry, this vertical or this uh, location to grow, right? So we believe that, for example, uh, in uh, Southeast Asia, there's going to be a big boom on energy uh, consumption. Uh, we got, a, a, I think, two-thirds of the population of the world are in, in Asia. So that is something that we need to understand, right? For example, for the food, we understand how the supply chain and the, uh, the whole food industry, it is, in a sense, broken, and everybody has to eat, right? So we start to search these partners. Um, we end up uh, finding uh, minds similar to us, like, for example, uh, participating in these events or talking with people uh, 
we end up uh, clicking with somebody. For example, in India, we made a, an amazing uh, contact uh, with a Kerala startup mission. It is uh, in the southern part of India, at the Kerala state, and we start to develop uh, the understanding that uh, this is uh, Kerala is one of the most uh, uh, educated states in India, and a lot of the people there go to uh, Delhi or different locations, right? So what they wanted was call the um, hold the talent, help them grow. And that's something that we understand. And we we start to develop partnerships there. The government has helped us kind of like uh, make some contacts, open the ecosystem and everything, right? We are uh, then starting to meet investors and then some uh, angels and everything starts to collect uh, kind of like uh, an ecosystem of equally mandated people, right? In the Middle East, we are uh, very fortunate to be working with uh, uh, the government of Bahrain, uh, Tamkin. It is uh, actually means empowerment, uh, I think it's in Arabic. And it is an institution that wants to empower the region with entrepreneurship, right? So we've been working with them. Um, in Asia, we're working with amazing partners, uh, Artesian. It's a fund that it is really uh, things like us, that they want to be growing up. They give us a lot of, of free way to kind of like set up things. They listen to us, but at the same time, they guide us into... Uh, what is they see as a, as a path forward, right? So uh, then we got, for example, um, in uh, in Australia, we're also with Artesian, and in Europe, we're working right now with a Polish government PARP. Uh, they have a, 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 a program that is called Scale Up and also the Poland Prize that they want to attract talent to help them grow. And that we're just finding these solutions, working with them, and uh, so far it has been a really uh, nice and interesting way of working. Well, I have to say that um, what I like about that story is that uh, you find uh, governments, either national or local governments, that they have an interest to invest in reindustrialization or to invest in hardware-based startups. And, and somehow that seems not to be that common, but definitely there are places that they are making a bet uh, on, on, on that. Why would you say that these uh, governments are are betting specifically on hardware startups? Because uh, I think that the most important part it is um, government is just one piece of the puzzle, right? We also want to work with corporates. Like uh, if there's any government corporate here listening to them, I'm happy to chat with you guys too, because uh, government by itself cannot do it. Uh, corporates by itself cannot do it. And also investors cannot do it, right? Um, at the end of the day, when we talk with governments, we explain uh, the secret of... Uh, growing your company uh so growing your your region it is uh, ip development and technology and everything right uh you can be enjoying and i'm sorry i'm taking a hit here to barcelona like tourists they come and it's great but then you get something like a COVID hitting or you get people that barcelona doesn't like to have so many tourists right because it's kind of starting to to change how the the lifestyle goes but if you got something that is bringing talent you're bringing people of different culture you start to grow the uh the revenue you start to get a lot of the uh, GDP of the of the of the location to grow because it is uh, technology, right? Uh, I know that Catalonia is very well known because of the uh, medtech industry and the pharmaceutical, and this is the part of the, the government that they start to see, and this is kind of like a stronger part. Uh, we have now COVID. Catalonia is strong because of the uh, medtech situation that we get, right? All of these uh, pharmaceuticals have been able to sustain the. Uh, the region a little bit more than if it was just touristic. I know that tourism is going to take a hit for Barcelona, but 
at the end of the day, if you get tourism and let's say that we get also uh, manufacturing mm-hmm. and you get uh, other stuff, that sustains what it makes of, of a location. And that is one of the reasons why we like to collaborate with the governments when we go to this place, see how we can work with them, how can we develop the ecosystem. We at Brink are not, uh, I would call it like uh, grasshoppers, jump in a place, eating and jump away. We like to set up roots, uh, sit down in a place, build the ecosystem, help them grow. And that's the only way to do it, right? Uh, have everybody working with you. And I think especially now, as you are mentioning, with the COVID crisis, not just uh, locally here, but I think in many places, there is this realization that um, there is a need to reinforce the industrial sector. Uh, and, and and this is something we, we keep repeating as a mantra, but um, we always say that... Uh, Strong economies are those in which the industrial sector plays a key role. So that means that it has a a strong weight on the national GDP. And there are only two ways in which you can increase the contribution of industry GDP. One way is that existing companies produce more and sell more. That's one way. Uh, But another way is to create new industrial companies. And I think that... um, well, we, we've been having conversations before, but I think that now there is a, a time in which uh, for those of us working in, in contributing in the development of industrial sector or industrial startups, um, well, there are new opportunities out there because many places realize that you cannot be 100% dependent on other nations or other places uh, uh, in order to confront uh, a crisis like the current crisis. Uh, so where do you have the solutions? Eh? From the mask to, to, to respirators and things like that. But also because um, a strong economies or the economies that they have as a basis, the industry, they are way more resilient economies than the, than the service-based economies. Eh? You're talking about the, uh, in our case, the service sector, um, it represents a big chunk of the, of the national GDP and especially tourism. And there are not going to be tourists for quite some time. You know, so so how you how you deal with that? So so there are opportunities out there, and I'm happy to see that um, that there are regions that they really want to invest in this area. And I love what you say that it, governments on their own they cannot do it, uh, investors on their own they cannot do it. You know, maybe accelerators on their own, but you need to have the glue that connects all the all the doors, and and that's maybe a bit uh, your role and also our role in, in in our region. Hey, I would like to jump to uh, some questions from from the from the sure. audience and then continue. But uh, so we have um, oh now I have to choose because we have several. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, uh, we have a question here saying when you're evaluating startups, how do you distinguish between a good and a bad team? And what is the most important thing for a successful startup? That's a good question. Um, obviously, uh, we get a lot of uh, teams. And sometimes uh, the first step that we do is kind of like, uh, is it a team that makes sense, that it is kind of like uh, cutting cut my attention? Uh, is it a team that uh, really get something that, that makes me change my main, main way of thinking, right? Um, I receive a, I evaluate literally thousands of applications a year and I receive teams who are like the same over and over again, right? Like when we're doing drones, we had a vertical takeoff and landing and every single team was doing the same stuff, right? So if everybody's thinking the same, yeah, it might be a good idea, but why would you be different, right? So we want to have a team who has 
something that becomes a mood, something that people cannot copy them. Because if not, you end up with problems. And I'm going to use this as a bad example, but it is a what's the difference between Lyft and Uber. At the end of the day, I can switch between them, whichever is my comfortable, and you can have a couple of issues to change. And obviously, Uber and Lyft are bad examples because they're unicorns. But I mean, like uh, these kind of changes are. Uh, are something that we need to consider, right? Um, I think that important it is at the beginning, we invest in early stage teams. Idea is really important, but it needs to be execution and the team. Uh, we like to have uh, founders who are uh, having some experience, have done something, or are very deep into the topic, and they're very coachable. Uh, we select generally uh, around 30 to 40% of the startups who apply, the top 30 and 40. We invite them to the next stage of our uh, due diligence and we like to talk to them. We re-evaluate how they communicate, how they how responsive they are, uh, because we're not just a, an investor. We don't just deploy money. We are an accelerator. We need to talk to them. And then we became kind of a, uh, like a relationship that lasts for years. Um, and this is because we are a very hands-on with our startups, right? So we need to have somebody who is very uh, eager to work with us, that there's coachability, that the team, we can see that the team works well together, that they're communicating. So that is something important. And uh, what was the most important thing for a start, successful startup? I think it's a difficult uh, situation. I will, I was reading a book a couple of weeks ago and it was saying timing. Timing is really important. Uh, for example, Globo just launched now, I think it's the first Barcelona unicorn, if I'm correct. And um, when I was in junior high school, I told my parents that I wanted to create a website where people can go as order something and I go to the store and buy them. They told me it was ridiculous. It's a stupid idea. Nobody wants to believe that. You cannot trust what you buy online and everything. And it's the same idea that Global has now, but now the technologies have reached a moment that it's adaptable. The people goes around, right? So it is timing, yes, but I think it's also what it is important. It is uh, understanding your market, right? Understanding... Uh, Many hardware and industrial companies, they are uh, great engineers. They focus in my product and they forget that they're not building a product. Uh, we at Brink had a philosophy of uh, three key aspects, uh, technical feasibility. My product can be done, yes, but my product can be manufactured and that is something different, yes. Uh, financial viability, my product, uh, it is not so expensive as going to break my bank. Uh, can I manufacture and the customers are going to be able to pay it? And then market desirability, right? My product is wanted by the masses. The people want to get it. If you get these three aspects at the end of the day, that's how you manage a sustainable company, right? Uh, definitely a lot of the companies grow super fast and you get aspects that it is uh, move fast and break and fix it on the way. Then you get companies that build a little bit more slower. You get uh, different examples of, for example, you get a uh, base camp. Uh, that has been more self-founded. You get Uber, who has been growing crazily, Facebook. You get a, a lot of mixes. But I think that what it is important, it is that the team understands the mission and their discipline. If they're going to be doing certain things, because especially in hardware, you always want the shiny new toy, the shiny stove, the fastest processor. Like I always tell my startups, good enough is good enough. Good enough that your product works as it has been promised. Good enough that you can make yourself a place in the market. And good enough that you can keep iterating for the next version. Because what you need to do is kind of like capture a market. It's very easy to deploy a product on a software. Um, you launch it in the Apple Store. You start to give uh, free access and everything. You cannot do the same in a hardware product. It takes months of, of, of development. It takes time. You ruin it once and then you are done, right? 
uh, you got no idea how many uh, products of gadgets that we have in the office in 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 in, in Brink. Of, oh, this startup was pretty cool, but it is kind of a, a gadget or uh, uh, just a trinket that at the end of the day, two years later, nobody's remembering, nobody's using, right. and this is the, the difference that we need to focus. on. Actually, this this brings um, to my mind to, to to ask you a little bit about um, the process itself. So, uh, in fact, I have two questions for you. One will be, what is the criteria to select a startup? So, we have lots of people uh, uh, watching uh, right now and listening. Um, and I think you have a, a, a new uh, call open uh, for, yes. for a startup. So, one question we have is, uh, what is the criteria to select startups? And then um, uh, if you can briefly explain what is the process. So what happens when you join uh, a program at Brink? Sure. So, um, yes, we, we have an open applications now. We, are, we started last week. You can go to brink.io slash apply. Uh, sorry for the advertisement here, Ariel. <laughs> uh, no, no shame. This is not shameful uh, uh, advertisement. Don't, don't worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we we generally uh, receive the applications. Uh, teams apply via F Success, and we review applications. Every single application has been reviewed by the Brink uh, leadership team. Uh, we go deep into understanding. We ask them to submit a, a couple of questions, uh, a pitch deck, and um, we we kind of like uh, take a look at them. And we want to make sense uh, of what they're presenting. If there's a market for it, if this is something that we think is going to change the uh, the paradigm. And we, we move forward with the top teams, right? We rank the, the teams in a different, in our own special ranking, and we top the top uh, 30 to 40% of the teams. Those ones get invited to the next stage. Uh, those teams uh, go through what we call ramp up. It is uh, more or less a month of uh, learning about the team, understanding what they're doing. So we ask them to get uh, uh, in the three core pilots that we're talking, financial uh, viability, uh, market desirability, and uh, technical feasibility. Uh, we ask them a couple of exercises. They provide us this stuff. And the top teams that we believe that make sense of it, we invite them to what we call the investment committee. Investment committee, the teams have from five, uh, five minutes to present and then uh, up to a half an hour for us to be um, uh, asking questions. Um, when that finishes, uh, if we see some interest, we go moving forward to a much more deeper due diligence. Uh, you told me that you're working with Procter & Gamble. Great. Show me what's going on, right? Oh, you told me that you sell to uh, Volkswagen. Cool. Let me see what you sell, right? We want to be able to uh, wear the proof. Uh, and once it's there, uh, we then just uh, agree also in evaluation. We see that it's on the range and everything. We start negotiations to join the program. Uh, that also helped us to develop a much more customized uh, program for each team. We got uh, more than 120 modules of education that we can present to every single team. But each team is different. Each challenge is different. We have teams from all around the world, like five continents, um, Latin America, North America, Africa, Europe. Like just, just tell us we got maybe uh, the only thing place we don't get a team is from uh, Antarctica. So... Um, it is, it is different challenges, and we need to understand what the teams want. So we, this month that we spend learning from them, we also learn how we can help them, and we create a plan. So by the end of the program, the team has uh, reached certain milestones that we already work together. And uh, we also have the advantage that we are a very tight accelerator. We're global, but we have a global team that is all the time in communication. Um, 
uh, me as uh, in charge of the accelerator programs, I speak with my program managers uh, every week or sometimes every day. We have a session uh, weekly that they all gather together to discuss and like, oh, you know what? I have a team here in, in Bahrain, but they are searching for something in Latin America. And what our portfolio manager is from Latin America. Well, me too, but oh, I, I know somebody. So let me introduce. So it creates a much more global uh, perspective. Uh, it is not only like, uh, oh, this is the, what the market you're going to be opening. We understand that you need to have a beachhead and we help you get there. But we also understand that many times opportunity knocks and we just make these connections, right? So that is how our program generally works. But, um, I'm, but, but I'm curious. So um, you have a focus on hardware. You have also a focus on manufacturing. Uh, you started in in uh, in China. Also, and there is this connection to China. So um, how important? So so how does it work? Um, you are joining one of the uh, twelve acceleration programs around the world, and there you're getting some support locally in that program and then there's a connection to china or not necessarily so how important is the chinese manufacturing ecosystem in your program very um as i said 70 percent of the world products are manufactured in china if you're going to manufacture something you need to understand china and it's not only about um the language it's the culture it is the, the understanding how it works um, I hear many times that, oh, China uh, is going to get overcome by Vietnam, India, Spain, uh, whatever. Like that. It depends on the newspaper that I'm reading that day, right? Uh, but you need to understand, China has been doing that for more than 40 years now. And uh, they have narrowed down to a science. They have a huge number of people educated that they know how to deploy that. And at the end of the day, you need to understand that. Um, the, the, all of the electronic components are mostly manufactured in China. You speak with anybody here in in Asia, that they're going to, uh, sorry, in Europe, that they're going to be doing even uh, PCBs uh, assemblies. And many times what they're doing, they're sourcing the PCB uh, without assembly uh, from the uh, from China, from Shenzhen, and they're sending it here, right? So all of these things is something they need to understand. And also um, we have partners with uh, more than 150 uh, manufacturers and product development uh, companies that help us kind of like... Uh, understand each product is different i cannot go to a factory that manufactures baby monitors if i want to manufacture a cell phone i cannot go to a factory who's doing something uh, related to cars if i want to do something that it is food related right and all of these aspects becomes a kind of like uh, a very interesting web of connections that you need to kind of like understand in china they call it uh guangxi this connection that you get with everybody and it is very important and that's something that you only gain by being there, by speaking the language, by understanding their culture. So we get our team in China who is able to communicate with the outside world, but in China they can communicate and build something. And that is one of the strengths that I see uh, on our program, right? Um, actually, it's good because I see one of the questions has to do with what you just said. And, and someone is asking, what are the differences between Chinese and European startups? Do you see differences there? Yes, uh, it is. Be kind. <laughs> so we at Brink, and you asked me also, like how we grew up so fast. Uh, we are used to the China way of working. Uh, you are all the time thinking like, oh, like uh, they are uh, a lot of people working. Yeah, but you know how many hours they work on average in China, right? It's 18 hours, 20 hours. The amount of work that they got, it is crazy. Uh, people are more used to this mentality of I'm going to work 
I'm going to tire myself and eventually I'm going to get the success. In Europe, we are more like, you know what? I want to enjoy life. I have to go my cafecito and stuff like this. And that causes a lot of a shift. Um, one of the biggest things that we do in our program, it is we take our startups to China to show them factories and everything. But one of the biggest shocks is not meeting, the, is not seeing a factory. A factory in Europe, like many of them see, follow the same standard, right? It is seeing the culture there, this hustle, this uh, hunger, how much they're moving. Like every time I'm in Hong Kong, I'm working from Monday to Monday, including Saturdays and Sundays. It's a Sunday I'm having uh, a hike with uh, an investor and we're discussing about something. After that, I have a lunch with uh, some friends and he introduced me to uh, a manufacturer who wants to go. And then like, there's kind of like this work mentality is really different. Um, I don't know, uh, many people said it's not healthy. I tend to agree, but at the same time, at the end of the day, they might have to suffer uh, later on their Ferrari compared to enjoying yourself in other places, right? So all of these things is something that I see. Um, a very big advantage that I see in European startups that are able to kind of like shift their mentality to a little bit more of this working heart of, uh, of, of China, it is this... Um, freedom of understanding. Uh, China and Chinese startups are more uh, hierarchical. Uh, the boss is wrong and right and nobody changes. An example that I love to say is that uh, in the 80s, uh, Southeast Asian companies, uh, especially airlines, are ha were having a very big precedent of crashing of their planes. And it's like, why? Our planes are good, our engineers are good, what's happening? It turns out that uh, the copilots or uh, so, uh, people who were learning, when they saw that their captain was making a mistake, they were so ashamed to go against the authority that they preferred to crash the plane and die than to tell him like, you're wrong. So they spent a lot of time kind of educating this mentality of like, it's okay to challenge authority sometimes doing this. And it created one of the safest airline industries in the world now is the Asian, and it is because of this, right? So Europe, uh, America has this kind of like, I can do it and everything. So this is a little bit of an interesting, I don't think that European American startups by themselves are good or Chinese are good. If they manage to get this both of these worlds, they're going to be great companies. And I have seen in companies who are Asian, we bring them here to Europe and because they learn and absorb so much, they end up becoming this hybrid. And that is the, the beauty of, of what we do and bring, right? Uh, seeing how the different cultures help them and became much better negotiators, much more uh, mobile. And uh, I think that's kind of the, the sweet thing of, of this. Actually, this, this is bringing also the issue of, of Europe versus China. So one, one of the things that we're obsessed at IQS Tech Factory is um, to contribute to the reindustrialization of Europe, if you want to start in our little corner of, of, of Barcelona and Catalonia. But uh, um, we think that's very important. And, and, and I wonder what is your perspective on that? So uh, does Europe have a place globally uh, uh, can be competitive regarding manufacturing. Uh, we had previous conversations in this talk series uh, with some of uh, our colleagues, for instance, Benjamin Jeff at Hacks, uh, comparing China to Europe. And, and we know by now that uh, this idea of going to China for a cost question is, is not the only reason. In fact, in many cases, it may make no sense depending what is the volume that you have to manufacture. But an important factor is the speed. You know, things are happening very fast there versus to how things are organized here. So, so something we're obsessed about is like, how can we become, how can we strengthen 
the manufacturing sector in uh, in in Europe, and and what should be our source of uh, competitiveness? So, what is it that we have that others maybe don't have? So, what's your take on that? I I believe that uh, we shouldn't be competing. Uh, it is more like I told you that there there should be a hybrid ma- a model. Uh, if Europe wants to compete with China manufacturer, it's not going to be able to do it. First of all, uh, if I, I don't know the, the numbers, but statistically, European uh, all of my European friends are generally focused in a business, economics, arts, uh, social majors, and it is great. But you have a big uh, amount of people who are not focusing in technology, right? Then uh, that is the biggest shift. Like, uh, how are you going to be training these people, right? Uh, number two, I think also like... Uh, it is not about replicating, and uh, I'm very against uh, iso- isolation, uh, independent movements, uh, what the United States is doing now, us versus them. I think that makes a lot of problems. We should be playing the strengths of each other, right? Um, I think uh, Barcelona is a great place for design, uh, medtech, and uh, they can work a lot with, uh, with China and in other aspects of manufacturing. This uh, cross-communication, this uh, merging of cultures, I think that's what you really want to do with the business, right? Uh, imagine that uh, you want to develop, uh, for example, um, a robot uh, that works in a certain way in China. When you come here, it's completely different. Like, for example, uh, even the payment methods, right? Here we got uh, Visa, MasterCard. Uh, in China, you get a uh, union pay and how they communicate is different. People use WeChat. So there's a lot of things that I don't think that competing it is the the way to go. I think it's collaboration. I like this uh, idea of um, how you call it that it is half horse, half human, a uh, centaurs, right? Uh, why don't you have a, commu- a company that it is half Chinese and half European? You get the best of both worlds. You challenge each other, and that is where you get the the, the magic of it, right? Uh, that's something I learned when I was in my uh, in my lab, part of my lab where I was in aerospace engineering, right? Uh, you take a look at what happened during the Cold War between the uh, United States and Russia. They were almost throwing rockets to each other, and the scientists were deciding how to make that the space capsules, when they meet together with Mir and uh, Apollo, were having the same latch, right? So these kind of things is what really makes a lot of changes. Uh, the world is such a small place. Uh, we are all, we can see now, like we get a pandemic. Everybody's suffering. So instead of like, oh, we suffer more than you, we're suffering. Let's put together ourselves to move forward. And I think that's something that uh, we need to kind of like take advantage of. Right now it is uh, Catalonia special. It's really popular destination with uh, Chinese people. You go to Paseo de Gracia and there's a lot of people uh, from China. Uh, take advantage of that, right? Uh, make, be, build a bridge. Uh, everybody loves, uh, for example, I, I was reading that uh, uh, Sagrada Familia was not well known on, except from Japan. Uh, until the uh, Olympic Games in '92, right? So these kind of things is like this merge of cultures and and ways of working is how we can do, right? Uh, and I I don't believe that there should be a competition, just collaboration. Fully fully agree. Actually, love the fact that you are bringing this up because. Um, we also see that the future goes by doing things together, going hand in hand. Uh, the, the question is like, what can be our contribution to that partnership? Let's say, yeah. But but fully agree, and 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 I and I love the perspective you're having because it's very much aligned to what we're thinking. To finish up um, the conversation, you just brought up the subject of the pandemic, and and of course, I would like to have very briefly from your side. So. Um, 
the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic is actually uh, 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 shifting and changing many things. Um, we personally think that is actually accelerating uh, many of the sectors that we are involved with and, and also the startups we're involved. But from the perspective of Brink, what are the main observations uh, you, you realize uh, due to the pandemic? So what, what are the, the main two, three um, uh, things that come up uh, so far on the, on the last uh, three, four months? Well, uh, it's not been three to four months, right? Uh, uh, well, we we are in China, so for us has been since the beginning uh, half a year. We <laughs> yes, half a year. Yes, uh, we get people in uh, in our offices in Guangzhou that they already are having these issues in January. So um, it has been a, a long road for us. We have seen um, rise and fall of of these in different locations. We have China. Sorry about that. Uh, our team in China was um, quarantined; they couldn't leave. Uh, I have heard a lot of, of noise in the media that, oh, they're hiding numbers and everything. But at the same time, I have people there on the ground who told me, like, as any government, they have uh, ups and downs, but they manage it really well. With 1.2 billion people, if they don't manage well, they will end up the way that the United States is going now, right? So this is something we learned. Uh, trusting in science, organized uh, technology. Like uh, in China, you're having your phone. Uh, they were tracking your temperature you needed to input. If you didn't input, uh, then your phone was telling them so you couldn't use the metro because you have to show. And if it was green, you can pass. If it was red, you were not allowed to. Um, then you got the massive testing and everything, right? Uh, then we got Hong Kong that we had a spike of cases and then it got reduced. Also, once again, they were using IoT solutions. You landed in Hong Kong, they give you a bracelet that it was uh, measuring where you were going. You have it to check how the temperature was uh, happening, right? So. I think that uh, the biggest view that I have here is like science, technology, and everything will help us grow, right? Like business now, like we're doing this on Zoom, we're doing on Twitter, like all of these things is going to be changing. And it is an interesting way. Uh, we were discussing last time, it is, uh, it is the moment that we're going to see a lot of changes and chaos cre brings creation too, right? And I think we're going to be seeing a lot of interesting changes in the future. At the same time, I believe that it is one of these big filters, like we get the dot-com bubble. Uh, this is going to be another one. All of the companies who have uh, who managed to survive this pandemic uh, are going to become uh, much stronger companies, going to be more responsible. They're not going to be blowing the money away just because they want a ping-pong table or stuff like this, right? They're, they know how to uh, storm these harsh conditions. And I think that's going to be uh, amazing. We're going to see... Uh, new blood into the ecosystem. We're going to see uh, new ways of working. Uh, so I'm really excited for the next year. I know that it is a sad situation that has brought us here. But uh, somebody was telling me that uh, COVID gave us 10 years of uh, business and technology development in six months, right? And it is because when we were cornered, we needed to jump out of our comfort zone. If not, we're very comfortable. I think that you have seen in a lot of banks, it's like, no, you cannot do that. You have to come to the bank to sign something, go to this line. And now it's like the bank, yeah, sure, open the, the, uh, the app and you get it ready, right? And all of these changes are obviously going to be bringing a lot of innovation to the ecosystem. That's I, I think we're sharing the same. We are kind of techno optimists. So we we always see opportunities in these kind of situations and definitely the the, the future looks uh, looks brighter. So with that, Eriberto, well, thank you very much for uh, such a great conversation. Lots of inputs. I think we learned a lot about 
how you're working at Bring. We, we, um, something we didn't mention, and actually I realize uh, IQS, Tech Factory, and Bring, we, we are collaborating together and we've been collaborating yeah. together. In fact, we have our own acceleration program, IQS Next Tech, and we also have an open uh, cohort there, or open call, iqsnexttech.com, uh, where we are helping startups go from a, a functional prototype to, to be production ready. And in our partnership with Bring, actually, there is one team out of the 10 teams joining each cohort that is selected as the most promising startup of the year um, and actually is joining part of the Bring program. So, so I think that uh, it's worth mentioning this and to bring this together. And that's one of the reasons we are sitting here today. So thank you very much for all your insights. It's been uh, fantastic. Thanks so much, and and uh, looking forward to talking to you very soon again. Same here. And thank you, everybody. It was really nice joining here. Thank you. So with that, um, we would like to, to come to an end to another IQS Tech Factory talk series. Um, actually, also, instead of thanking Eriberto, I would like to thank to IQS Tech Factory and Barter, um, Barter teams for making it possible. Thank you very much. And until then, we wish you to have a great day.